Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Feel Your Fandom Podcast. My name is Saint. And I'm Jim. Question mark again, are you not sure? No, I'm pretty sure. Okay, well reasonably sure. At least that's what everybody calls me, so I better be by now. You certainly look like Jim, so... Well, I'm not sure how to take that, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll roll with it anyway. <laughs> and, and Welcome back. And and so I want to make sure we put this at the top of the episode. We always end up putting it at the bottom of the episode, but I want to throw it in at the top, too. Uh, ways you can reach us. Uh, places you can find us. Maybe you're not happy listening on Spotify. Maybe you want to listen on Breaker or Apple Podcasts or uh, iHeartRadio or Pandora or wherever... We're wherever you can get your podcast. We're, we're available. Uh, in addition to that, if you want to be uh, interacting with the show and interacting with us, uh, you can reach us on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Feel Your Fandom, or uh, on our Gmail, which is feelyourfandom at gmail.com. Or if you have a show idea, would like to be a guest on the show, or would like to suggest a guest for the show, we're all ears there as well. And the address you want to reach out to for that is fyftalentbooking at gmail.com. That'll jet right to our inbox, and we will gladly read it and get back to you as soon as time allows. Or you can find us on Instagram. Now, that's where we post all of our dumb little memes. Uh, And we do post us some dumb little memes, for sure. (laughs) You can find us at Feel Your Fandom on uh, Instagram as well, so... Uh, lots of places you can reach with us, lots of places you can interact and, and, and join in, be a part of the show. We kind of do this for y'all too. So, uh, in addition, I mean, we just love talking to ourselves and, and, and each our, other. So our pretty much private echo chamber here, but, uh, um, you know, as, as we've been able to demonstrate <laughs> in the popular culture the last couple of years, being in an echo chamber is kind of a, uh, a bad thing sometimes. So we always welcome outside opinions. We always want to hear what you guys think. If you got concerns, complaints, uh, praise, I'm not going to lean too heavily on that one. But whatever it is you want to say, it's what we want to hear. So reach out to us. Let us know. We don't want this to be a one-way conduit of communication. Um, you know, we're all ears if you've got something you want to say. Praise. Yeah, I know how that is. It's like the, the anxiety that I feel most of the time is like I hear in my head all of the negative shit. And, and it's like so no matter how negative anyone wants to be to me, I've heard it before. I've heard it from myself, so... Yeah, believe me, we've beat ourselves up worse than anybody else ever could. <laughs> but the stupid thing about anxiety is, it's like somebody's like, oh man, that was really great, I loved that, and I don't know how to take a compliment either. At the same time, it's like, uh, Hell no. what do I do with this new information? Uh, <laughs> thank you? I, I almost prefer the anxiety, because I can believe that, because the calls are coming <laughs> from inside the house. Right. I've been listening to him for years. I I understand that. But the compliments, it's like, well, uh, okay. But uh, we we appreciate any kind of input you guys want to have on the show. So Uh, it's been a long, long week. Jim, how you doing today? Uh, It indeed has been a long week. I'm looking forward to a week off from work next week. I've got some uh, road tripping to do. Got some places to go, some people to see. So I'm looking forward to a little bit of downtime from work. Uh, not that I want to complain too hard, because uh, I really do love the old day job. I get to write for a living, and that is only slightly cooler than it sounds. So I don't complain too much about it. Sometimes there is a lot of work to do, but the worst day writing still beats the best day digging ditches or waiting tables or, you know, doing manual labor. So uh, not that I'm going to denigrate our, our country's workmen. They do a fantastic job. I'm just going to work humans. Let me just take that again. Not that I want to denigrate anybody who actually works for a living, because uh, uh, those folks really make the world go around, but um, I- I'm very lucky and very happy to have the job that I have. 
but still mm-hmm. having a little bit of a of a sabbatical from that to be able to take care of some things that need taken care of and some people that need taken care of is, is going to be a very welcome welcome break absolutely and and speaking of writing now here's kind of the cool thing about so we've known each other right around 20 years something like that and yep and uh, you you're a writer i i dabble in writing i'm not i wouldn't say i'm a writer but uh, i'm definitely uh I, I dabble in that arena in that field between screenwriting and and uh, uh music writing and poetry and things like that and short story absolutely and, and one of the cool things about this week was uh you in your sickness <laughs> got to uh uh you you woke up i guess lucid after after this dream you had where you yeah ha- yeah talk talk a little bit about that well you're very sweet to bring this up um last week thursday so just about um, a week ago now, a week and a couple of days, I had a fever dream. I got a fever. And I dreamed an entire screenplay. Now, I, you know, people who listen to this may not know, I actually made a run at a screenwriting career a couple of years ago, actually had some very early success with it, and then some uh, crazy shit happened in my personal life, and I wound up having to, to kind of bail on that and leave Los Angeles. So I've always kind of had that hanging out in the back of my head. I've resented a little bit that I never got to really explore my my fledgling screenwriting career and i've always kind of sworn i'd get back to it someday so a week ago thursday i was having a fever dream in the midst of fighting this strep infection that i'm just on the tail end of (coughs) there you go Mm -hmm. so um i woke up with this story in my head fully formed and it just nagged at me and it it just it it followed a a classic three-act structure a, a classic storytelling timeline and i just thought you know i might actually have something there so on Friday afternoon last week, uh, I bought a copy of Fade In, which is the old screenwriting software I used to use, but it's long since gone on several different computers I don't use anymore. And I sat down just to take some notes to see if I couldn't scribble out just a basic outline for the story. And I wound up writing an entire 97-page screenplay in about two and a half days. <laughs> and the uh, shortest amount of time I've ever written anything previous to this, and, and I, I've never done one solo before. I've always had a screenwriting partner. Um, it was about 28 days. I worked on a screenplay a couple of years ago that wound up doing well in a couple of contests that actually got me some uh, some traction uh, with my then partner at uh, Paramount Studios and and with a couple of uh, household name producers that shall remain nameless because things never really kind of came all the way to fruition with that. But I, uh, I, I wrote this thing in, in just about 72 hours. And I kind of stepped back and looked at it, took a pass to maybe clean up some typos and fix a couple of things, maybe shuffle a couple of characters around. And then I thought, yeah, that's actually a thing. That is more or less exactly what the dream was. And I just kind of transcribed what the dream was. And then kind of on a whim, I just thought to myself, well, self, um, years ago when you used to write screenplays, your first thought was to enter some contests and see if you couldn't get some attention, some notes, some feedback from some folks who work in the industry. So I did some quick Googling and and realized that uh, three of the biggest screenplay contests that I used to enter, uh, the ScreenCraft Screenplay Contest, the Page International, and the Nickel Fellowship, which is affiliated with the Motion Picture Academy, all had deadlines for their contests uh, within the next two weeks. So I ponied up uh, some entry fees and shifted this script off to a couple of different contests. And uh, they do take their time working their way through that process, but fingers crossed, um, I might be on my way back to being able to call myself a screenwriter again. Now, and I'm going to tell you this. I had a pass at your at your screenplay. You were you're kind enough to send it along to me, and well, you were I, nice enough to ask to read it, which is a very rare thing, and I appreciate that very much. And and the good thing about my job now, for those of you who don't know, 
I very recently switched jobs to the point where I I sit around and I drive for the railroad companies now. And so what that means is I'll go out to wherever these railroad crews are and be their wheels on the ground because they don't have transportation wherever the trains are at because sometimes they need to go from the train to the yard to wherever else and they need someone to shuttle them around. And well, that's my job. And so oftentimes there's a lot of sitting around involved. And just like you were saying, I'm not going to denigrate anybody who works their ass off because, as you said, they're the ones who keep this company or this uh, this uh, country running. But uh, my job is fairly cush. It's fairly easy at this point. <laughs> Legitimately, the only rule is there's like three rules. It's OK, drive safely. Mm-hmm. Don't touch your phone while you're driving yeah. and show up on time. I mean, it couldn't get any easier than that. So. The cool thing about this job, though, is it gives me a lot of time to sit around. And so what I did was I, I sat there and I plowed through your entire screenplay uh, in this uh, one job that I was at while I was waiting for crew. And, and I couldn't put it down. It was absolutely oh, fantastic. I loved every nice second of it. Well, I mean, and, and you know me. You know me. I'm not known for hyperbole. I'm not known for, for just saying it to say it. If I say it, I mean it. And for sure, this was... It was fantastic. It was fun to read. And and the coolest thing about it is, uh, I don't know how many of you out there have actually ever read through a script with the, the notes and everything that tell you what's going on in the scene and everything like that. But I saw this movie in my head. As mm-hmm. I was reading it, I was watching it. And so I got to the end of it and I felt legitimately like I'd watched this movie, which is fantastic. That is amazing to, to hear. To the point where I was sending you casting notes and shit like yeah. that. <laughs> we were kind of kicking actors back and forth, trying to figure out who uh, who'd you have in mind when you envisioned this, because this is the person I saw. Well, I was thinking this person. Well, that works too. That's uh, how interesting. But yeah, yeah the screenplay is such a, a, a specific animal. It's it's essentially a blueprint for a film. So you're a little bit limited as a writer as far as what you can actually write because you're only allowed to write what can be seen and heard. You can't use any internal monologues for your characters. You can't say what they're thinking. You can't say what's running through their head. You have to just kind of uh, you got to make that. it show up. Yeah, through visuals. Anything you can't see on the screen or hear through the speakers, you, you can't write it. Um, and also the screenplay format because of, and not just the way that it looks on the page in terms of margins and font and spacing, but also the way that it's structured with a, a classic uh, Joseph Campbell Hero's Journey three-act structure that has to hit 28 beats according to most conventional. It's it's a pretty specific thing. So for you to be able to take an original story and kind of stretch it over the existing blueprint of what Hollywood considers to be a movie, it winds up being both restrictive and freeing at the same time because on the one hand, it kind of winds up being paint by numbers. So you know you have a real clear roadmap of where you need to go with the story that you have, but you also kind of have to stick to that. Um, and there's, you know, been a lot of people who've sort of um, debated the merits of what's considered classic stream, screenplay structure. You'll hear the the save the cat method kicked around a lot, uh, which is an entirely different podcast that we can get into at a later date. But essentially, if you're going to write a screenplay, it's got to fit certain parameters, both in how it visually looks on the page and how it structurally plays out. Um, but that does wind up giving you quite a bit of... Um, Quite a bit of, of structure that, that, that exists before you even got there that allows you to take an existing story and just kind of stretch it over the bones of what is considered to be a screenplay. So it, it, it definitely helps out a lot to, to move along and, and do something like, say, write something in three days. Yeah, right. Because you, you have to fit that mold, otherwise it's not what you're trying to do. So well, yeah. And I, I'm, like I said, I'm excited to see where this goes for you. 
And in fact, I'm at the point where I'm going to I'm going to utilize you to to kind of help me with my own stories because and I sent you a, a copy of the book that I wrote like oh god, yeah. it was like a dozen years ago at this point. And uh, it, it just kind of been sitting in a file on my computer. Any computer I have, it always upgrades to the next computer and just gathers digital dust, uh, as it were. So mm-hmm. uh, you said you wanted a screenwriting partner. Shit, we're going to make this happen. Woohoo! Because, fuck it, what else we got to do? That's yeah, so. pretty much the podcast, which, uh, you know, we should probably get to. No! <laughs> we should probably stop no. stroking here and uh, and actually <laughs> we can get into the meat of the episode. Well, it actually, it is, it does have a little bit of a loose tie-in here. And and, and, yeah. and that is that, uh, like I said, with uh, the computers that gather digital dust and things like that, uh, that's kind of what I wanted to talk about a little bit today is, is, is these... Things that we attach ourselves to, the retro things that we attach ourselves to, not necessarily video games, but that's certainly a part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I know you and I both have a soft spot for uh, retro video games and stuff like that. So yes, that's not that's not really even much of a stretch. But what I, what I'm talking about today, though, is is there are things that, for whatever reason, hold kind of a sentimental uh attachment uh, uh whether it's like an old phone or an old style of phone or an old computer or tablets or junk like that or, or vhs versus laser disc versus like old technology that we kind of cling to even though it's you know for all intents and purposes outdated at this point uh yeah technically obsolete tech that still came into our lives at a certain point and resonated with us that's stuck with us that we still kind of use even though um you know arguably better solutions have come along that sort of scratch that same itch and and fill that same niche in right somebody's digital life and i found myself thinking about that recently because uh for the longest time uh streaming music wasn't really kind of my way to go um i always because i always felt like you know if you stream music if you go out of a internet coverage zone or, or cell yeah. phone signal coverage zone, your music drops, you lose your music. So I was always mm-hmm. really sold on, like, lately, it, the last one that I bought was the little iPad or iPod Touch Nano mm-hmm. kind of thing, the, the little uh, the little one. Uh, not, not not the little clip-on tie clip-on one, but the, the definitely <laughs> the small one that's like uh, a pack of gum, yeah. basically, that you just slide in your pocket. And the reason I like that is because it's super duper small and, and it worked on Bluetooth, so you could just slip it in your pocket and be good to go with it. But we did have an incident where one of them got washed in the laundry, so Oof. I mean, it's a double edged sword with that. But yeah, things like that. It's like I was real resistant to jump on the uh, streaming music train, which of course now I'm fully on board with. But now see, I'm still not. I'm still not, and that's for a couple of different reasons. Um, first of all, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to buy music twice. I don't want to even pay a monthly subscription fee to something like Spotify, not to denigrate our podcasting partners, but like <laughs> iHeartRadio. And so in order to, to not, to, to, to be a free customer, you got to put up with not having a lot of choice. You sort of like whatever shuffles up is what you listen to. And you got a limited amount of skips plus there's ads. And like you said, you know, if you get out of a coverage area where you're not getting decent signal, then you're not going to necessarily have a good connection to be able to listen to that. But also because I've actually had this happen before. Now, U2 ate some shit a couple of years ago because when <laughs> Apple put out a new iPod, I remember. it came pre-installed with the new... Or even if you had an existing iPod that you synced at one point, 
the existing U2 album, whether or not you wanted it or bought it, would get automatically synced to your unit. Which, you know, everybody thought, hey, free music, who's going to hate that? And U2 is a very popular band. But a lot of people were really salty about it because they didn't ask for it. They didn't want it. It took up space on their, their system and it felt very invasive. But the other side of that coin, and I've had this happen to me before too, is that when you buy a, a streaming product or a digital product, it's hidden in the user license agreement that you're not actually buying a product. You're buying a license to use that product for as long as the issuer of said license right. elects to allow you to use it. Right. So I've had books disappear off my Kindle. I've had songs disappear off my iPod. I've had um, games that I've downloaded disappear off my game consoles because I don't have a physical backup copy. Now that comes into play a lot. Like there was, I remember a couple of years ago, we may have talked about this before. There were people that were selling uh, at a very high premium Xbox 360s that had a copy of the Scott Pilgrim uh, side-scrolling beat-em-up mm. pixel art yeah, game installed right. on that's it. Right. Because at one point there was, I think, a dust-up over music licensing, and the publishers of the game yoinked it off of consoles as long as the consoles at the time were connected to the internet. So there remained a very small amount of Xbox 360s that had not been connected to the internet during the great yoinking of that game that still have the game installed, and it, was, uh, it wound up kind of like attaining this mythical status of like the forbidden game uh, so I, I'm still because of that, shit like that. They did that also with, uh, if you remember that really dumb uh, Android game, or uh, not Android, it wasn't Android only, but that uh, app game, uh, Flappy Bird. Yes, exactly once, the same. Once thing. they pulled Flappy Bird because of all the different uh, licenses that they uh, kind of uh, stepped on and and copyrights that they broke. And they're not, you know, they're, they owe you nothing in restitution for that. You're not entitled to a, a refund. Uh, you, you're not entitled. Sometimes they'll say, I yeah, will give you a free game in the future, whatever. But I, I, for that reason, tend to be pretty old school about only trusting physical media. Most of the games that I buy, for even for the newer consoles, uh, I still buy physical media. I actually march my happy ass down to GameStop or pop onto Amazon and order a disc because I just don't trust the publishers to not take that game away if at some point they decide down the road that the, it's in their best financial or legal interest to do that. Right. And I've been dabbling lately with digital content. I, I do a lot of gaming with the uh, PlayStation VR, the PSVR. And and so I've bought a number of games recently that are digital only um, yeah. for that. And then like I think just last week I ended up buying uh, the, the new and tasty version of Oddworld. Abe's oh, Odyssey. Such a huge Oddworld fan. Top five games of all time. Yeah, absolutely. And then, uh, well, because I, I saw that they were releasing the sequel to that, Soulstorm. Uh, yes. On, it was a free-to-play game on PS Network, and and so I was going to download that I did that buy anyways. it, and I'm a couple hours into it. Such a, you know, Oddworld can do no wrong as far as I'm concerned. It's a little bit more difficult, the, the, the learning curve and the uh, the difficulty curve on that game is a little steeper than I remember, but... Um, you know, I'm really loving the game. It looks great. It plays great. And Oddworld is just one of those publishers that that can't uh, they can't fuck up as far as I'm concerned. Whatever they put out, I'm gonna anticipate it and then buy it sight unseen. And one of the really, I mean, I know we're going off on a rabbit hole here, but one of the cool things about the new Oddworld game is we have a mutual friend who lent a voice to Oddworld. Yes, we uh, do. James Stephanie Sterling. Uh, yeah, the uh, the great games uh, YouTuber and 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 uh, and writer. Uh, who who uh, is is very well known for um, being hypercritical of, of aspects of games <laughs> and the games industry and, and punching the faces that need punching. Um, they lent a game voice to the game, and uh, I'm very looking forward to hearing what they have to say when I reach that stage in the actual proceeding of a game. Right, and the cool thing about that is uh, 
in the in the intervening time between uh, having lent their voice to the game and uh, now the release of the game, uh, the pronouns have changed. Steph has come out as non-binary, and and of course that wasn't the case when uh, they recorded the the game voice, and so um, it came out with their original name and their original uh, pronouns and all that. And uh, once they made this known to Oddworld, they issued an almost immediate uh, update yep. to fix that. And so you, you go off and say that Oddworld can do no wrong, and, and, and I'm with you. I think that Yeah, that's, that's the kind a, of company they are. That's the kind of company I want to do business with, honestly. For sure. And so, so okay. you know. All of that's that, not. That, <laughs> yeah. So the upshot of that is I don't trust, uh, to, to, and I have good reason not to trust digital-only media. So I've always gone with MP3s, and I, I worked at a record store, which is a, a very old-fashioned f- sentence, but I worked at a record <laughs> store all through college, and uh, any week that I didn't wind up owing the company money was a good one because I carted armloads of discs out of that place. I can imagine. And most of them are in storage. I've got somewhere in the neighborhood of 20,000 CDs gathering dust in a box someplace, but Jesus. I also have... Almost all of those songs ripped onto a, a couple of dedicated hard drives with backups that I keep in a closet. Um, and at any given time, I've got around 10,000 songs, uh, digital MP3 files on my phone so that I can kind of just listen to them anywhere I go. I've got Bluetooth headphones. I've got, um, you know, connection in the car that I can listen to them and also run the GPS at the same time. It's very handy. But... Um, yeah, I, I, I have had to, because of my overall distrust of digital media and streaming media, and my understanding that the per- issuers of the licenses of that media are going to do whatever they're going to do, I carry physical, or if not physical, at least digital hard copies of, of those songs so that I can just kind of have them anywhere I go. And as a result of that, I wind up, whenever I buy a new phone every year or every other year, I look for phones that have either expandable storage or a very, very large onboard storage capacity. And that was one of the main uh, purchasing decisions. And the phone that I have now, I have an, uh, a OnePlus 8 Pro, and it comes with onboard 256 gigabytes of storage. And right now, around 110 gigabytes of that is actually taken up just with music files on my phone. But See, that's, that's amazing. why I bought it that way. I wouldn't have it any other way. Because um, I just, over the years, I've, I've kind of got my music collection dialed into to what I like, and if, if new things come out that I enjoy, then I buy those things, and I, I actually physically connect the phone to my computer and, and port them over into the folders and, and make sure that the tagging and the album art is still all correct, because that's another thing. One of the upshots and, and sort of side effects of working at a record store is for years, I could look at the cover of a record and immediately tell you the year it was released, uh, who the artist was, what the songs were that were on it, what it was called, just by looking at the cover art. So... It's kind of a comfort thing for me to have the cover art attached to the MP3 file. So all of my MP3s are are, are incredibly OCD'd up. Not, not that I want to mock anybody with an actual mental illness, but I'm very particular about making sure that my files are very very tagged properly. And so that when I, I'm, I'm driving, I can glance down and, and feel that little surge of dopamine when I look at a the cover art of an album that I, I really enjoy and that I remember stocking on the shelves of my, my long-ago record store when I was in college that I loved dearly. Yeah, and see, that's kind of the thing for me is, is I've never been that kind of OCD. And like I said, I was slow to adopt to uh, streaming service, but I've been using Spotify uh, long enough now. Uh, I had a former friend who had let me have uh, one of his memberships, his family memberships. And so, you know, I wasn't paying any kind of money for it. And so I was getting the ad free, the unlimited skips, 
the ability to download your playlist to your phone, which enables you to not play it from any other. It's not like you're downloading the MP3s, but it gives you the ability to download the, the, the list to your phone. That way, if you ever go outside of cell coverage, it'll keep playing. And uh, so I got really kind of spoiled on that. And then, of course, when that, that friendship went the inevitable way of the dodo, uh, I was already far too spoiled at that point. So I ponied up for my own membership. And I'm not sad, I'm not sad about it. Like you said, they're a partner with the show. They, they feature our podcast. So I'm not, I'm not and about... And it's not like it's expensive. And it's not like it's not worth it's like, it. It's like 15 bucks a month or something like that. And, and, and everyone and in my family you pay for Netflix anyway. Right. Everyone in my family can use it now. Right. And so uh, I'm able to share my playlists with my kid, and he's able to sh- send songs to me and things like that. And so I'm not, I don't definitely knock that at all. It was, it's, like I said, it was a long time coming, but um, mm-hmm. so we're going to take a real short break. And then there's some other uh, uh, retro tech I want to talk about and, and the reasons behind our love for them and, and kind of our lingering uh, attachment to these things. And uh, stick around, we'll be right back. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. So, yeah, kind of the thing that I was alluding to, and one of the things that I really have always uh, uh, stuck with as far as uh, musical concerns is in my vehicles, now that I've seen all these vehicles like the Teslas and everything with these humongous screens in them and everything, I always get super jelly. This is actually the first vehicle that I've had that has the built-in Bluetooth and everything else as part of the stock stereo. And I'm not knocking it. It's a nice little stereo. I added a subwoofer and everything to it, but it doesn't have that. Like you do. Right. It doesn't have that big screen. It doesn't have navigation capability. And so I've always been trying to find a way to to add that to the vehicle. And, uh, you know, of course, you can go out and buy like a $300, $400 Android Auto system and get it uh, installed in the vehicle. And that's all good and well. Sure. Um, so, you know, okay, so there's three or $400, but the fact of the matter is, is for my particular car, I drive a, a Mustang, a newer Mustang. Uh, just the kit to install that into the Mustang is like $400, $500. Mm. So that's on that's top junk. of the cost of the stereo. So I can't bring myself to spend that. Um, I would beat myself up, much less my wife kick my ass about that. So... <laughs> um, I'm always looking for alternative methods to do that. And what I've found is if I take a tablet with Bluetooth capability and everything like that, and I can lash that to my car as if it was a cell phone, so whatever plays on the tablet runs through my vehicle. Now I install uh, Spotify on the tablet, and I can run Spotify and, and Apple or Google Maps side by side, Mm-hmm. Uh, split screen on the screen as I as I drive, and I have access to the Spotify catalog of music, so that's pretty great. And then I also have my maps, which is like the biggest reason that I want this big screen in the car, anyways. So I've managed to find a way to uh, 
uh, use technology to achieve the goals that I wanted. Um, and it works. I really enjoy the way it works. And it actually looks pretty seamless. Uh, it looks like I've got one of those big floating screen uh, test yeah, screens. Necessity is the mother of invention. And, and, you know, if you, you can find a way to sort of jerry-rig around what it is that you need to do without having to tear apart your dashboard or buy some expensive kit, and it works for you, then, uh, you know, so much the better. There's, there's yeah. no point in, in having to, to go whole hog on it if you can find something that, get, that gets the job done for you. Right. And so that's one of my things for a lot of years has been I love going to pawn shops. I love going into pawn yeah. shops and seeing what's cheap and seeing what's what's around. And and my wife hates it because I go into pawn shops <laughs> and I'll come home with like a, another tablet. Yeah. Or I'll come home with uh, a computer that just needs to be refurbed a little bit and uh, to make it work. And so I did that for a lot of years. And I've ended up with just piles of old tech lying around the house that I ostensibly start out having a purpose for and then just don't uh, yeah i have a real soft spot for that stuff and again we don't want to go off on, a, on, a, on one more video game tangent but i mean between you and i collecting all the miniature cabinets <laughs> you know of the, of the sort of retro video games it's a newer expression but it's still kind of an older form factor and an older game right uh, and then of course um the actual game consoles i just recently had to sort of in order to free up ports in the back of my tv that are limited i had to kind of mothball some of my older consoles so um, right now, I just have the PS5 and the Xbox Series X and the Switch hooked up to the TV, and I've got the PS1, the PS2, the PS4 Pro, the Xbox 360, the Xbox One, and the Dreamcast all kind of like stuck in a closet right now, uh, and at some point, I'll probably set them up in a different place in the house, but for now, I'm just kind of focusing on the stream of stuff that's coming out for the, the consoles that are considered current gen or next right. gen or what have you, but... You know, I, I have a soft spot in my heart for um, old, obsolete tech. Yeah. Like, for instance, you mentioned earlier, one of the things that when I get another uh, sort of entertainment spot set up in the house once I shuffle some things around, uh, you mentioned this earlier, I have a working Laserdisc player. Now, I bought this Laserdisc player when I was in college. I was probably 18 or 19 years old. And it was like 94, 95, maybe 93. And it was... Um, I went to, to Best Buy because I needed some stuff for my dorm room. I wanted some music, and I found this Laserdisc player that actually had a, a dedicated tray in the middle of the Laserdisc tray that would pop out if you selected a CD function, and I needed a, a stereo console CD player anyway for my in-room stereo, so I thought, you know, why not just go ahead and get a, uh, a Laserdisc player as well? Because Laserdisc at this point were kind of like, this was just, just before DVDs became a thing in the popular culture. Um... So I bought this Laserdisc player, and I remember it being relatively expensive for the time. It was around $250, and it was about the size of a suitcase. It was a big monster, because Laserdiscs are obviously they're, they're like a DVD or CD, but they're 12 inches across like an LP. Right. Um, and then I left Best Buy with that, plus about you know 150 bucks worth of, uh, of, of, of Laserdiscs for movies that I wanted to watch. So then I started collecting Laserdiscs, and much like the CDs that I have, those are also all in mothballs, because the Laserdisc player is kind of gathering dust in a closet. But... I held out on DVDs for a long time because I had that Laserdisc player, especially because once DVDs came out and the Laserdiscs were old and busted and DVD was new hotness, um, DVDs were expensive and Laserdisc uh, media 
kind of the, the, the price plummeted on that. So you're able to pick up these laser discs that used to be thirty or forty dollars for five or ten bucks a piece. So I was just buying those things up hand over fist. I was cleaning out the racks at like Sam Goody and Sunco's video. Again, very much dating myself on that reference, but <laughs> I, uh, I, I have a collection somewhere in this house of about 150 laser discs, and they're fun. I mean, it's it's really at the time it was the kind of video files digital premiere. It was the it was the best quality you could get in the age of VHS and Beta. And then, of course, uh, within about eight or ten months of me buying that laserdisc player. I read an article in Consumer Reports about how the digital versatile disc was going to revitalize and and, and rejuvenate home theater, and it was uh, the true video files and cinephiles format that you was it was uh, an update and a replacement for for the laser discs of old, and and uh, that's when I started buying up laser discs real hardcore. But I still have the laser disc player. Thing still works. It's just in a closet, and so is all the media somewhere. But I, I love that thing, and I had it hooked up to my TV for years. And the interesting thing about uh, not just necessarily laser discs, but like we're talking musically, so we go from vinyl to eight track to cassette, cassette to, DVD, to, 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 to CD. CD. Yeah, I mean, there's always going to be the new hotness. There's always going to be the next wave, the next tech. But but the interesting thing is is for the most part, the old tech doesn't go away right away. The old tech sticks around. No. And, and then it comes it, back into being cool again at some point. Well, I mean, yeah, look, and that's where I was getting to. Look at vinyl right now. Yeah. Vinyl went out of style a lot of years ago. Uh, I would say mid-80s. Mid-80s to early 90s, it started tapering off. Yeah, once the car culture really took off in like the 70s and 80s and you couldn't bring LPs on the road and you had to have cassettes and 8-tracks, that's kind of when uh, they became more of a home-based media. You had your home stereo, but you were doing a lot of driving. You had to bring your music on the road, so you had to kind of diversify your media right. a little bit. You had to find a way to take it with you, and so uh, that's when the move to cassettes and eight tracks, or eight tracks and then cassettes happen. But uh, right now, there's such a renaissance for uh, these vinyl and even cassette, which I don't understand the cassette one. If I'm going to be honest with you, just because I had so many problems with almost every single one of my cassette players would just eat tapes after oh, yeah. a while. So. I mean, the good thing about tapes is tapes were cheap, and if you made backups or if you, you know, made mixtapes, the, the, the portability of cassettes was great, but also the versatility of them were great. I mean, the sound quality, not so great. There was always that hiss, and they had different ways to remove that with sound reduction on your stereo or, or chrome-plated tape or whatever, but cassettes always <laughs> kind of sounded pretty well like shit, especially in comparison to uh, even vinyl and then later digital. But the, the portability of cassettes was great. And if you could make up a, a mixtape for that girl you had a crush on in junior high and, you know, slip it into her lunchbox or something with some little stars and hearts drawn on the outside of the case and felt tip marker, <laughs> um, you know, that was, there was a definite appeal to that. And there was a, a nostalgia factor to that where, hell, I mean, I, I, I have definitely, in very recent memory, made Spotify playlists for people that, that I am trying to woo. And, and it was at least partially successful in helping me do that. <laughs> Um, you know, but that's kind of the, the modern equivalent of the mixtape. But, you know, cassettes had their drawbacks, but they, they definitely, uh, there, there was a certain elegance and a certain charm that they had in the adaptability they represented. Right. And, uh, like, as far as vinyl goes, like, like I said, it's in, it's in a big resurgence right now. I've got a record player, which uh, I yeah. haven't had a record player since I was, I think the first stereo I bought back in the day when I was... Uh, Oh, God, what year was that? It was, say, 90, 89, 90, 90, 91, somewhere around there. I bought my first stereo with my own money and everything like mm -hmm. that. And and so and I still remember distinctly the first two tapes I bought 
which was uh, a poison, open up and say ah, and then uh, Batman soundtrack for 1989 Batman with all that Prince music on it. Yeah, the first two cassettes I bought with my own money was uh, <laughs> Fear of a Black Planet by Public Enemy and Queen's Ooh. Night at the Opera. Nice. Very good choices. But And I don't even remember. I didn't have... I had a vinyl player. I had a record player on that stereo, but I never really used it. I think back in the day I would use it to listen to my dad's old like Bill Cosby comedy records and everything, and that's a horribly dated sentence now. <laughs> um, because fuck Bill Cosby entirely, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, now, uh, I've got this, it's a very nice record player. It does records, it does tapes, it does, it actually burns Is it one of those console ones you can lift the lid up on top of and put the record in and then you can slide tapes in the side and you can burn CDs? I I have one of those Mm -hmm. somewhere that I bought and I think it broke and I kind of put it away hoping to fix it later and it's this, oh yeah, okay. Yeah, it's very similar to the one that I have. It's a, a, a tabletop unit and it's kind of a combo unit and it plays all kinds of media. Right, and, and I love it. I love it to death. And, and I've actually got kind of a sizable record collection. Uh, thank, and, and in part, thanks to my, my guitar player, James. Hi, James. Uh, he hooked me up with a lot of... Because he collects vinyl. And so he started sliding me like duplicates that he had. Or I mentioned that I loved Queen at one point, and he, he slid me like six different Queen albums. Like, uh, See, that's uh, a good friend just, to have right there. That is a good friend. and And so, I mean, I've got... A pretty decent record collection at this point, including some original Beatles stuff and uh, some original Queen and and things like that. And so I'm, I'm old George Carlin albums and uh, 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 things like that. And so I'm really I really love my record collection. I go to it uh, whenever I just I'm trying to relax with music. And I found that that's kind of a cool thing for me to do. Is is as a musician, I've music is obviously very very important to me. Um, yeah. But one of the things that I realize that I don't do is I'm always on the go with my music. It's always in the car with me or it's in my my headphones as I'm working or walking or doing errands or anything like that. It's always with me as a kind of personal soundtrack. But I take it for granted because I never find myself sitting down and just listening to music to listen to music. Does that make sense? Yeah, I've read a couple of articles recently about this this new practice of mindful listening because music has, for so many of us, because we're on the go all the time, we're driving, we're working. I listen to music while I'm working during the day. <clears throat> but there's this this movement toward mindful listening where the idea is uh, to really put on your favorite album and, and put on a pair of good headphones and just lean back and listen and don't do anything else while you're listening. Don't let it be right. background music. Don't let it be ambient noise. Actually listen to it, get into the lyrics, understand the melody, the textures, appreciate exactly. the nuance. Exactly. And we, we know you're right. We don't really, really do that anymore. I have a couple of albums, the aforementioned Night at the Opera, um, Better Than Ezra's How Does Your Garden Grow, that are just very, very important to my musical uh, formation as, as a person and as a musician and just as a, a human being. And I, I once in a while do, once every couple of months, I'll, I'll put on the headphones and I actually have a... Uh, a rip of a Japanese half-speed mastered vinyl version of Night at the Opera. I've got the Dolby 5.1 remix of, of How Does Your Garden Grow from Better Than Ezra. And I just put on the headphones and I sit back and I close my eyes and I listen and I really, really try and just feel the music. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I distinctly remember once I got the record player, the first album that I'd actually sat there and did that with is, I've been a huge Elton John fan my entire life. God, uh, he's fantastic. He's fantastic. And, and, I put on, I had just recently acquired the uh, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road album. Timeless. And so I sat there and I, 
I put, like, nobody else was in the house. The wife and the kids were off all running errands and whatever. And so it was quiet. The pets were all being quiet for a change. And so I, I put the album on and I just sat back in my chair and, and I just listened. I just took it in. And it was, it was, it was almost surreal, the difference in yeah. the experience. And so I really kind of enjoyed that. But uh, so vinyl for me is kind of a new uh, hobby, I guess, new experience. Uh, intake of, of retro technology but uh I, I reached out to a lot of people on on facebook about this because i know uh a lot of our fans and a lot of listeners have different varying uh things that they kind of cling to as well and and we'll mention a bunch of them by name because i want to make sure i give everybody a shout but uh we have a cd as a digital media uh, like, like people like you who have like thousands of cds in their collection mm-hmm. they're small they're uh, easy to store, well, yep. relatively, and uh, uh, where if you keep them in good shape, they they play well. I mean, yeah, they hold up forever. Uh, we got VHS, uh, laser disc pops up. The vinyl, eight track cartridges. I had a friend who's into eight tracks. Yeah, uh, some of the first portable music that I ever experienced. That uh, we listen. My I I thank my folks very much for. Providing me with a very musical upbringing and a very diverse musical upbringing. Um, we listened to a lot of vinyl in the house uh, just during dinner and, and during, you know, uh, family time. And it was it was very formative. And there are certain bands that I love to this day that I heard for the first time as a kid. But they also had 8-track players in their cars. And the first time I ever heard Queen's Night at the Opera was on an 8-track. And I used to, I have a very distinct memory. I have the cover art for that album. It's very colorful, designed by Freddie Mercury, piece of cover art. And it's tattooed on my left shoulder. Both because I love the album and because when I was a kid, I mean, that album and I came into the world in the same year, 1975. So I used to listen to that when I was a kid and, and my parents got so tired of hearing the album. It's a great album. They love the album now, but like um, they got so tired of hearing it that they used to take the the the, uh, the A-track and stuff it under the car seat. But I was onto them. I knew where it was and I always pulled it out and looked at it. And, and one of my <laughs> earliest visual memories as a kid is that cover art. And I plugged that thing into the dashboard. And my earliest musical memory is the song You're My Best Friend, which is on that album. It's a John Deacon composition. And, of course, Bohemian Rhapsody is also on that album and some other all-time classics. But uh, that, that album was, was one of the first albums that I loved as a kid. And I, to this day, still love it. But the first time I ever heard it was on an 8-track tape. That's interesting. And, like, for me, uh, two of the formative bands of my growing up was uh, uh, Aerosmith. Mm-hmm. I was always a huge Aerosmith fan. And Queen. Uh, uh, both of which i i inherited from uh my mother specifically but from both of my parents in particular and uh, in fact i remember my my dad was in that uh, time life music of like the whatever decades you know oh music of the 50s music of the 60s and so he'd have all of these different tapes and cds and collections growing and so i was able to uh, when he wasn't paying attention he wasn't looking uh filter through these and and find different types of new music and things like that. And so, uh, and then I specifically remember my mom having uh, Aerosmith Classics 1 uh, was, uh, I believe, the red one. That was the one my mom had in the car all the time. And then uh, there was a Queen Greatest Hits uh, tape that she had that I would listen to. And I mean, Queen's Greatest Hits, the UK version of Queen's Greatest Hits, still the single best selling record in all of UK history, by the way. Uh, and I have a copy. I mean, every, I've got everything Queen ever put out that I know of, including some shit they never put out, because I'm just an obsessive collector of that stuff. But um, they had there were several different editions of Queen's Greatest Hits, but that was the original, the UK version. And, of course, uh, even though it's 
I, I have several different instances of certain songs over many different collections and the albums they were on originally. It is, of course, in my permanent collection, that album. Right. And uh, off the subject, my, uh, my like I said, my, my guitar player, James, is huge into uh, vinyl. And uh, his uh, roommate, Jeremy, who's my drummer, uh, recently uh, got him a really nice... Uh, what he thought was an original pressing of News of the World by Queen. Mm. And uh, it's it's beautiful. It's immaculate. It's Such still, a great record. It's still sealed. And James kind of shows it to me and he goes, here's the tragic thing. It's, just, it's not original. Mm. I'm like, oh yeah, what, uh, what, what brings that up? And, and he turns it around and underneath on the, the small print on the back, it has Queen's website. <laughs> www you know uh, and, and, yeah that wouldn't have happened in 78 <laughs> and i'm like damn well i mean at least it's it's still in pristine shape it's still beautiful He's yeah like, i had yeah, an original japanese half speed mastered copy of uh, of night at the opera and it's been played once um it's been out of the but I, I took it out of the plastic in front of brian may to have him sign it when he's doing a personal appearance at a tower records in chicago uh, when he was on tour for his second solo album nice um and he uh he did a personal appearance at this record store and i i took it out of the shrink wrap in front of him he signed it and it's it's in a frame right next to me Isn't with his signature and the date me yeah it's, it's, uh, brian it's brian may, may and i yeah. as he's signing the album and then i have that picture in the frame above the album um as sort of like a pseudo certificate of authenticity like look you can see that the, the, the album below with the signature on it here he is in the picture signing it and here i am standing next to him and uh, I, that was one of the top five moments of my life. Brian May is exactly, I got 30 seconds with the dude, but still, he's exactly <laughs> who you want him to be. He's, he's exactly who he appears to be. He's humble. He's soft-spoken. He's warm. He makes you feel like you're the only person in the room. And uh, I just absolutely loved the opportunity that I had to meet that guy and get my album signed. But yeah, I've met a couple uh, of celebrities it, like that, that it just kind of, yeah. you know, you always kind of wonder if a celebrity is going to be uh, like just jaded and, and, and just over the whole thing and... Uh, uh, I know I met like Nichelle Nichols from Star Trek, so Star Trek's original Ahura. I hear she's and, incredibly delightful. Oh my god! Just that couple of like seconds that I was able to hover in that circle. She's so warm and so wonderful. Uh, George Takei, same thing. Very, very, uh, yeah, warm and that and, really comes across whenever you see anything from him on on the internet or any videos or what have you. Right, but uh, we're gonna. I mean, I had no. No real compunction about talking about old tech because I knew a lot of it would would hover around musical uh, shit and and, and cause just because music's so formative to the both of us. But when we come back, uh, we're going to talk uh, just a little bit more about uh, retro tech and uh, where it sits and holds a place in our hearts. And and also, I'm going to throw uh, I'm going to read the list of people who contributed on uh, on Facebook and let them know let everyone know what they thought too. So stick around. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back. So, now, like I said, on Facebook, I sent out a message talking about uh, uh, old school tech and what do you find that, uh, uh, I said, what tech are you most nostalgic for and why? 
I said video games, DVDs, VHS, Super 8, Sky's the Limit. What do you look back forward? Or what do you look back fondly on? And uh, so my friend Rob says CDs. He said there's a clear sound and no gap in the music. Also, uh, the shrines of CD cases were always kind of sweet to look at. I can't yeah, fault that's them true that. they were. Yeah, you can a, kinda... a monolith of somebody's musical taste you could sort of clock at a glance. And I always thought it was fun to go over to a buddy's house. Like in particular, my friend Chris, who now lives in the Detroit metro area. Um, I used to love going over to his house because his music collection was so eclectic and so strange. And I would love to just grab a handful of CDs from him at a time and burn them for myself and, and try to wean through this guy's music collection, which was just off the wall. Like, this guy's crazy. Like, he's setting, he made a mixtape uh, for my buddy Robert's birthday at one point, uh, Dr. Robert Moorhead, who's been on the show before. Uh, made a mixtape of all the different versions of Barbie Girl uh, by Aqua that he could find. And, and and I think there was something like several dozen versions. Whether it was in a different language or a different style. or It was horrifying to listen to him come up with this compilation. Because <laughs> we used to be roommates, Chris and I, and, and uh, he's like, that's the way I'd wake up on the weekends, because he would get up and make dinner, or make breakfast, excuse me, for him and his daughter and everything. And uh, so he'd put on music in the kitchen, and I'd be in my room groaning, because it's like, oh, fuck, what is he listening to now? And uh, I'd go out there, and it's just the most bizarre, bizarre shit, and it's never the same thing twice. Like, one week it'd be like all the different Barbie girls, and then the next week it's like flamenco music, or I mean, it's just it's just so weird with him, and and, and beautifully weird, wonderfully weird. Gotta love that. Uh, my friend Lee, uh, shout out to Mister Lee Packard, talks about VHS. Now I know that he's been on this kind of kick lately, where he goes to tape swaps. Uh, there's a real soft spot for that uh, old VHS among people. I don't understand it personally because I had the same problem with VHS that I have with uh, tapes. Yeah, the... VHS back in the day we used to joke stands for very highly shitty. <laughs> the video quality was never good. The sound quality was even worse. It was just full of, you know, warbling and scratch. And, and the, the picture quality was just grainier than sandpaper. But, you know, it was a means to an end for a period in time. And he says that he's uh, he's found a bunch of tape heads on Facebook. So he got back into collecting VHS and VHS movies. And uh, he goes to the tape swaps, and, and he meets a lot of cool people that way. And that makes sense. I mean, use it as a community aspect. I get that. Sure. I get that. Be kind, and... rewind, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Good friend of the show, Matt Luria, uh, also posted about laser discs as well. I imagine probably for the same reasons that you did. Um, yeah. My favorite thing about laser discs that I meant to touch on earlier, but uh, and this would be this would be fun, and I'd be watching them with somebody who had never really seen a laser disc before. The, the picture quality is pretty good. It's it's on par with CD. I mean, especially or DVD. Excuse me, uh, especially in in, um, in standard definition. It, you notice the difference is a little bit more when you're watching it in HD. But I've, there were certain movies that I'd watched so much, like Clerks and Noises Off, which are just classic favorites of mine. That at one point I would. About 15 seconds before I needed to, I'd get up and I'd stand up out of my chair and I'd walk across the room and whoever I was with would wonder what I was doing. And then that would be the point when I'd have to stop, eject the Laserdisc and flip it over to watch the second half of the movie. <laughs> They're like LPs in a lot of ways. They're 12 inches across and there's media on both sides. Yeah, and see, I did the same thing with VHS back in the day with uh, like Titanic when it came out on VHS. It was a two-taper. 
Yeah. Uh, also, uh, there was this big made-for-TV movie starring Meryl Streep, of all things, uh, Holocaust, that was talking about World War II history and things yeah. like that. And, and that was like a three or a four VHS, and so it was a big one. But uh, my buddy Mark Karras uh, says, and now he says he doesn't really have any particular nostalgia for the tech itself, but with rather the memories that are attached to the tech. And that um, really is the big story there, too. He says, if you handed me the tech now, uh, it not only wouldn't be the same, but it would it would be kind of disappointing. He says, you remember going to his grandma and grandpa's house to play their Atari, which is a super great memory, but it's not anything about the Atari itself. It's that moment of time. Yeah. Uh, and that it can't be duplicated. Like, I remember, I, I have real back. fond memories of of playing the original. Well, not the original, because that would be the arcade version, but the, the super, super shitty Pac-Man ver, uh, version on the 2600. <laughs> I have Which it. was just full of horrible sound effects and really bad graphics. But my dad loved that game. He liked, you know, my dad was not a huge video game fan, but he loved Pac-Man. He loved the arcade version. And when we brought home the uh, the home version for the 2600, as shitty as it was, he loved that just as much. So my dad and I used to trade the stick back and forth and play that. So I have real fond memories of playing games with my dad when I was, you know, maybe six or seven years old. Right, exactly. Uh, my friend BJ Copeland says that to this day, I'll hear a song from my past that as it gets to a certain part, I'll think to myself that this is the point where I had to flip the 8-track cartridge over. Yeah. So that's kind of a fun memory, kind of like you were saying with the Laserdisc. It's just like you just yeah, know totally. it's time to flip the tape. Uh, my buddy Eric Trotman, the comic book writer extraordinaire, friend of the show, uh, says Zip 100 drives, mostly because oh, I have man. a ton of them and I would love to get the data off of them. That makes sense. Yeah. It's so archaic now, it's like almost like impossible to find media for or find a connector for or none of it's even compatible with modern technology so it's like oh shit yeah yeah lost in time uh my friend ali says vhs specifically for the coming soon ads coming soon on video and dvd <laughs> um and then cds as well for the lyrics in the cases and the album art which i i, I get yeah i do too uh, for sure wesley says laserdisc uh, my buddy Eric uh, Horton, our, our resident uh, Cobra Kai expert, uh, talks about how he loves his nostalgic video games. And uh, that's something, like I said, I guess that's always going to be on the list for me, is the ability and the, and the availability of all these old-style video games that I can still access and run like a library of video games. Absolutely. And then uh, my friend Genevieve, this is the last one we're going to run through, is uh, my friend Genevieve says... Uh, uh, liner notes and art from CDs, and also being lucky enough to have them signed by the band. She says, I still have VHS and here, cassette here. tapes. I love being able to record TV shows, movies, or nightly countdowns for my favorite station on the radio. Creating mixtapes. Uh, she says, well, I guess we have playlists now, but that little cassette felt exclusive and personal. And, you know, we talked about that a little bit as well, and that's absolutely right. Like, you make that mixtape for someone, and it's that... It's that moment in amber that we keep talking about, that yeah. that that feeling. Flashpoint crystallization. Right, and I remember making mixtapes for old girlfriends and things like that as well, and and you're absolutely right. The hearts and the stars, and the you know this is how I feel about you, and I'm going to tell you in song what I can't bring myself to express out loud to your actual face. Right, and and especially if you're someone like me with anxiety, you got to let. Uh, 
uh, someone else do the heavy lifting for you. You just kind of assemble it in a way that lets them let do the professional that. bards, lyricists, and poets handle the uh, <laughs> handle the, the the big emotional stuff. I've got a couple that I was going to comment in that thread, but I thought I'll save them for for spontaneity's sake for for the actual uh, episode here. I had back in the day when the internet was first a thing after I got out of college, <clears throat> and I wasn't able to use the computer labs at my college anymore. I still wanted to stay online, but I couldn't afford a real computer. Right. So I did a couple of things. I remember going into Office Max and buying this thing on clearance. It was already a couple of years past its sell-by date. It was called the Brother Geobook. Now, I had a Brother word processor all through college that I used to use to write my papers on, and it had a small um, Every time you say brother, tone. I just kind of want to you know, hear it in Hulk Hogan's voice. Hey, here you go, brother. <laughs> Come on down here, brother. Brother, brawl, brother, straw. Brothers, brother, brothers, brother, 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 brother. So I had this brother geo book, and I, I, I kind of trusted the brand. I had some brand loyalty because of the brother word processor I had. Had a monochrome screen and a flip down keyboard and a printer attached to the ass end of it that you could you could print out your papers for college, and that's what I had instead of a computer in college. But then I got out and I found this at Office Max in the clearance rack, and it's called the brother geo book, and it was kind of a laptop but kind of not. Because um, laptops then were still very, very expensive. And this thing, I think I snagged it for like Markdown, 100 bucks, And it was kind of like it had a system on a chip. It had a, a flash BIOS on a chip, kind of like a glorified Palm Pilot to a degree. Okay. Okay. But it, it had the form factor of a, of a laptop. And you could flip it open. It had a screen. It had a not a full operating system, but about eight or ten icons on the screen that you could had a, a very rudimentary web browser. It was kind of built into it, and an email program, and that was for about two years what I used to get on the internet with in, I want to say, gosh, you know, probably late 90s. I want to say I bought this thing 1999 or 2000, and that was kind of what I used, and then after that I moved on to this thing that I actually recommended that my folks buy, and I got one for myself. I remember it was $300, it was $299 shipped, and it was a thing called an eye-opener. Our eye-opener internet appliance is spreading faster than a Texas grass fire in August. Um, kind of like <laughs> iPhone or iPad, but it wasn't an Apple product. It was i-opener, and it was by a company called Netpliance, which very quickly went out of business. And it was a not a computer, but it had a screen and a keyboard and a very small base that had some computer-like components built into the bottom of it, and you could hook up a mouse and a keyboard to it that came with it, and you could also hook up a um, just a phone line for dial-up. It had a 56K dial-up modem in it, and it Ooh. was for people who didn't want like a full computer, but just wanted to be able to get online. And it was the same thing as the GeoBook. It had a built-in web browser and email program. Not a full computer, but it was a bargain option. And it was kind of the um, the catch to it was it was one of those subscription-based models, because in order to buy this thing at a discount, uh, they were selling those as loss leaders at, a, at a, a loss for actual production of the hardware. You had to use their ISP to get online. And it was dial-up, and it was wonky, and there were local numbers you had to use, and it didn't always work. But it was a very economical, low-cost option. And a, a kind of a cult has sprung up around that thing. If you Google it, i-opener by Netpliance. There are people who found ways to sort of like dig around in the guts of that thing and, and retro-engineer it into like an actual working PC. Because apparently, like I said, they lost money selling the units, but the components of that thing were relatively robust for the time, even though they weren't... Like, but you could hook up external... Uh, if you wanted to do a little soldering and figure out some pins and shit, you could hook up disk drives to it and external components. But that's neither here nor there, because the big thing, the one piece of tech, even more so than Laserdisc, that I miss more than anything else, which was huge in my personal sort of tech formation, is the mini disk. Mm. 
I loved mini discs because I sort of stopped. I think I still gap. have one of those somewhere. Oh, I'm, mine is hanging out next to the laser player in the closet. <laughs> uh, you can still find the media on Amazon. It's super cheap. Uh, for the uninitiated, mini disc was kind of a gap, a stopgap between CDs and digital streaming mp3 that never an mp3 yeah cds and mp3 you're, you're right that never really took off because it was kind of like 3d tv where look you just sold us hds a couple years ago and the 4ks are coming so don't fucking try and palm me off on some expensive stopgap thing i don't want and don't need um very very few original albums were issued on laserdisc you could you could buy some albums if you went to like best buy you could buy albums on, on minidisc um but the big attraction of Minidisc was that it was a digital recording format that was a lot easier to use than CDR. To this day, if you're going to do a CDR, you got to have a PC with a CD burner. You got to buy blank media. You got to drop it in. You got to use a burning program. You got to drop and drag your tracks. The Minidisc worked much like a cassette player, where you could hook up any external source of audio to it, whether you wanted to make a, a mix from your CDs, whether you wanted to hook up some some. Uh, outs from like a live board if you were in a band which i was at the time to record a digital version of your show which we did quite a bit of that back in the day you could do that i also at the time was was uh in college or just out of college and was doing a lot of work in theaters uh both on stage and in the tech aspect of it doing lights and sound so most theaters then in order to do sound cues if you had a show that needed sound cues you had some overhead speakers and you had a tape deck with a bunch like a giant stack of labeled tapes in the back that were very easily knocked over and uh you know in order to make sure that you got the cues in on time you actually no matter how long your sound cue was if it was five seconds ten seconds or 30 seconds or however long it was you had to have a, a dedicated cassette with just that sound on it so you weren't fast forwarding during the show trying to find the sound cue and and the actors on stage wouldn't be waiting for a sound cue you had to have it ready to go so you could just pop it in and hit it and boom it was off to the races the mini disc I, I kind of sold myself to different theaters as being a sound tech that was digitally equipped because I had a mini disc player and I could record all my sound cues in incredibly digital clarity, um, take them off of, of public domain sound effects discs or source them or however I needed to get those sound effects in. And I could put them on mini disc and then I could play the, 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 uh, the, the mini disc track and then stop it and then just queue up the next track with the button and then it'll be ready to go instantly at the touch of a fingertip, crystal clear digital, no stack of tapes to, to dick around with and have to rewind and knock over that sounded like shit. And that wound up getting me quite a bit of work um, back in the day as a sound tech. And it came in real handy, like I said, recording live band shows. And even before I had the one... The, <laughs> I've only ever owned one piece of Apple tech in my life because I'm not a huge fan of Apple, but I actually enjoyed I got given an iPod Classic. Oh, they didn't call it that then. It was just the iPod. Um, before they came out with the touches it was a click wheel ipod it was 120 gig capacity i think it was and that to me is the best piece of tech that apple's ever come out with i, I loved that thing and i carried that around i got it as a gift and used it quite a bit but before i had that in between cassettes and the ipod and now of course i have all my shit on my phone i had a tiny zipper wallet like you would carry around cds in uh, but instead of like a real big one that looks like a giant book this one was much much smaller like a large wallet and it was able to hold, I think, 24 mini discs. And I had collections of all my favorite songs. I had like an alt-rock collection. I had all my old favorite Queen hits. I had some classic rock stuff. And I had all these little, la not laser discs, mini discs. And all these mini discs, they came with a little label on them. And you could write on them and, and write what they were. And I used to flip through. And I had a tiny portable mini disc player, like a phone or like an iPod. And I used to just pop open the lid, stick in the mini disc. And it was good for 74 minutes of digital music. And that was my portable music for, I want to say... A good three or four years. I held off 
I was I was a holdout on MP3 until I got that iPod as a gift, and then I kind of never looked back. But I still have that mini disc player. I, I I would still use it if I ever found a, a use for it. Um, who knows? I may. I, it, it still works like a charm. I still have the portable in a drawer someplace and the charging cable sitting next to it in case I ever need to use that. And that I actually used to use to bootleg live shows with when I would go out because you could hook up a phantom power stereo mic to the uh, jack next to the headphone jack on the top of the thing, stick it in the breast pocket of your shirt, hit record when the concert started, maybe swap out between songs if it ran longer than 74 minutes, but I still have somewhere in a drawer, again, all this shit is stuck away in a drawer gathering dust, but I still have a stack of old bootleg concerts that I went to back in the day that I really should dig out and, and put into MP3 one of these years. Um, but yeah, mini-disc, the one thing that, it's, it's not even close, the one thing I miss more than any other old tech that really was just something that I loved at the time, for both its functionality and its convenience and for what it represented in terms of freedom, I will never forget my mini-disc, even though almost nobody to this day remembers those things existed. See, and I think you wanted to do this episode just so you could wax on the, on the mini-disc. I think you wanted to just get into your nostalgia I loved and your it. love of the mini-disc. Now, I have one. I ended up getting this, I think, back in uh, 2005. Uh, I, about the time, yeah. I worked for a company here in, in Washington that sold um, computer components and things to uh, corporations and things like that. And, and so uh, at one point I had won a mini disc player, Sony mini disc player, uh, as part of a contest or a giveaway or something at the company. And so... I think I still have it in a drawer with a few uh, discs available. Uh, I might just dig that out and, and mess around with it just because you brought it up. But uh, And then that's also where I got my first iPod, which was, again, the, the ClickWheel iPod. But I bought the the uh, Apple, the uh, U2 version of the iPod. Because the red I and black one. The red and black one, because those are my two favorite colors. And so I wanted yeah. the ability to have that. And, of course, it came with the shiny back signed by, quote-unquote, laser-etched by all the signatures of the band members and everything but uh not really my cup of tea but one of the cool things i wanted to that i had in mind as far as retro tech goes and of course we could talk about video games and whatnot at leisure um and and then that's an entire different episode but uh there was always this thing is i always like to go and find like i said tablets and whatnot at mm-hmm. uh at uh, pawn shops and and on offer up and things like that i buy them uh, cheap and try to refurbish them and give them a purpose and I had this uh, once I started reading comic books digitally because comic books are real expensive these days and yeah and, yeah uh, you know we all gotta be a pirate somehow or another um, I found a way to read comics digitally and so I wanted to store comic book collections uh, where I could access them and this has never come to fruition because again it's just something that didn't end up being uh, feasible in a way that made any kind of sense is now I'm a Star Trek fan on Star Trek. They have these things called pads, which is their version of tablets mm-hmm. and they'll walk around with them and, and trade information on them and everything like that. They use them for exactly what their purpose is. And in fact, John champion made a joke about this at one point over the court or multiple points over his podcast talking about how, uh, like there'll be a stack of pads on a desk or, like, you know, oh, you're going to give someone your entire music collection. Here's a stack of pads with all that music collection on it. Whereas yeah. in modern technology, it's just like you just got one pad. You got one, you got your iPad and it has everything on it. But I had this, this 
you know, pie-in-the-sky dream that what I wanted to do was have a little bit of a bookcase where I could have, like, 8 or 10 or 15, whatever, like, tablets. And each of those tablets has a certain set of comic books on them that I could always jump back into and get. And so I started buying tablets towards this ideal, this goal. My wife hated it. Absolutely <laughs> hated it. Um, and and rightfully so. And, and I stopped after a while. And I've still got a pile of them somewhere. But uh, I stopped after a while because I realized that the operating system doesn't age up with the tablet. Uh, so the True. tablet becomes obsolete very, very quickly. And then also... Uh, Micro SD technology has grown leaps and bounds, and you can fit so much on a on a micro SD card now uh, that it renders it stupid to have more than one. I can get one tablet with like a five twelve gigabyte micro SD card, and I could fit ridiculous amounts of content on the one tablet. And not have to have a yeah, bookcase. Those, things, those and, go up to like two terabytes now, those tiny little micro SD cards. Right. Those, that's an expensive card, but the, the capacity of those things is just cavernous at this point. Right. And if you're wanting to do just something like where you can make like a, a portable library of media, it makes no sense to have multiple... Like This isn't like a mini disc player. You don't need to have multiple copies of, of, of a tablet to make that work. You yeah. can put it all on one card. And have the one card be just your media card. And so, like I said, the idea didn't make any sense after a while, so I had to stop. But, you know, for a while I was going on this this bender of just picking up cheap tablets and refurbing them. And trying to make them make sense to some degree or another. And So, I mean, it, it, was, it was one of those things that I, I still love doing at one point or another. And I have to catch myself every time I go into like a pawn shop now. It's like, oh, they've got a... They got a, a, a third generation iPad. Oh my god, that could, <laughs> I could do something with that. No, stop it. No, <laughs> so you're not. But I, do I know the instinct. I, I I have to I have to actively forget that pawn shops exist because they're just full of everything <laughs> I want. You know, they're full of retro video games. They're full of musical equipment. Um, you know, guitars and drum stuff and, and, and little boxes of buttons and flashing lights. And I just have such a soft spot for all that shit, regardless of what it does. Cause that's the problem. You can walk in there and you can look at something. You can go, well, I didn't need that before I walked in here, but now that I'm looking at it, I can think I of a dozen things it. I could do with that. Yeah. I, that has to leave here with me, you know? And, and so there is that, uh, <clears throat> that sort of impulse by instinct when you walk in there that, I mean, it's so cheap, and at one point that was really cutting edge, and that's still got some miles on it. Let's take that home and see what we can do with it. But at this point, I can't justify it. I've got all these tiny arcade cabinet replicas. I've got all these video games I haven't even started yet. I've got about six TVs. Uh, i got enough weights to keep me uh, uh, busy for a while on the, <laughs> on the fitness program. I've got musical equipment I haven't touched in a couple of months. And you know, anything that I buy now is just going to be clutter. And I just need to tell myself, you know, why don't you do the things you meant to do with the things you already have before you take on any more new projects that are just going to hang around and take up space and drag down the balance sheet that you haven't even gotten to the first things yet. Yeah, and I've been finding myself fighting that more and more and more. Uh, and and I'm, I got lucky in this in the fact that as far as collecting old video game systems go, I have pretty much everything that's uh, commercially uh, readily available all the yep. old Ataris and Dreamcasts and Intellivisions, ColecoVisions, things like that. 
I have all of it now. Most of it's in storage, but I have them. Uh, so really, uh, my desire and need to pick up uh, old video game stuff now has been pushed back towards the more rarer things and, and the things that just pop up occasionally. So luckily, that saves me a bunch of money. But uh, just uh, the itch. The itch is always, yeah. always there. And, and, and I imagine it's the same for vinyl collectors. I know James goes through the same thing. He, he goes record shopping and he can't wait to show me his newest acquisitions. And uh, I know with Lee and, and going out and doing his VHS uh, tape swaps. And he loves to show off the things that he gets from the tape swaps and everything too. And I get that. It's, it's, it's become like a niche collectible thing now. And so it's it's like you find your groove and you just kind of settle into that. So I'll always be like the retro video game guy. James will always be the vinyl guy. Uh, Lee will be the VHS guy. I mean, we all have the thing. So Everybody's I got mean, their thing they're into. And that's kind of the, uh, the entire thrust of this, of, this, of this whole podcast. Right. I mean, we find our fandoms and we, and we glom onto them and stick around with them and and, and hopefully and we, we just... nurture them sometimes to our own detriment but you know, they're the <laughs> things that we love so indeed well uh i think that kind of sums up what i wanted to talk about and 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 i want to thank you guys for listening uh to this episode of rambling weirdness uh we should change the podcast name to just be rambling idiocy it is what we're best at but i want to thank you guys for listening again to another episode of the Fear your fandom podcast as i said at the top you can always find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Fuel Your Fandom. Uh, you can always send us your ideas for uh, episodes or what you're uh, retro about or what you want to talk about and kind of interact with us there. You can reach us on our Gmail at uh, fuelyourfandom at gmail.com. Or at fyftalentbooking at gmail.com. If you have an idea for the show or want to be on the show or want to... Call or if you just want to names. say hi or send yeah. us pie recipes or, you know, whatever Oof. you want to do. We're, we're here for send you. Send us pie. Send us actual pie. Yeah, fuck the recipe. None of that uh, some assembly required stuff. Send us actual pie. We'll, we'll come up with a uh, an actual physical address for you to do that at some point. Yes, P.O. Box us some fucking pie. But Do it. <laughs> but I want to thank you guys again for listening. And as always, please do remember that everything is fandom. And fandom is everything. Take care.